Greetings, Rank and Review listeners. Welcome to a very different episode of Rank and Review. A very different episode of Rank and Review that's going to start with a very special announcement. Here's the thing I've been hosting Rank and Review for about five years, close to. Your host and random Canadian is just another voice in an ocean of voices on the internet of movie ner- nerds kind of bitching about the state of genre cinema. So, what makes me think, like, my opinion is valid? Why do I feel justified in, you know, subjecting my personal opinions on you? Well, I love the arts. I love film. I love the theater. And as well as doing this podcast over the last five years, I've been making a movie. And on June 16th, 2018... That movie is going to have a test screening at the Broadway Theater in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. There's going to be two shows, possibly three, depending on how well the tickets are selling. People are going to be able to give their feedback on the film, and it's all in preparation to get my first feature film ready to go for the festival season in Canada this fall and in the new year of 2019. As a result, I've been a very, very busy podcast host. And as a result, you're getting a different episode this week. You're getting a different episode, and I'm just going to ask you earnestly. I've said it before, but I've never meant it more than I meant to do it now, okay? Please help me spread the word on Book of Trespasses, my first feature film. Share the podcast, spread the word. I don't know when or how or even if this movie is going to be made available wide. If you're in reach of Saskatoon, please try and make it to the screening. If not, keep your eye on the Canadian festivals uh, this year. But any way that I can spread the word on Book of Trespasses would be really, really valuable to me. My creative partners, Gareth, who you've heard on the show, Jared Berry, who you've heard on the show, we've put literally years of our lives to work at this. Thousands and thousands of dollars. We've won friends, we've lost friends, we've just put our heart and soul into it. So if you can share this podcast, if you can spread the word, Book of Trespasses, written by your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and co-directed by your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. Nobody makes a movie by themselves, and this episode, instead of just doing six reviews because I'm a busy man getting ready for the screening, 
I am going to give you an excerpt from an interview I did with Jaron Francis a few years ago when I thought the movie was ready to go. Turns out we had to do some reshooting and we had to re-record some of our exterior sound, so it took another almost two years to get us to where we are here. But you can hear that I'm excited about the movie two years ago, and the movie looks and sounds even better today. Um, so you can hear my trepidation, you can hear me excited about the film, but uh, nervous that it's getting out there. And that trepidation and those nerves never went away. Not ever. I very, very rarely mentioned that I was even working on the film in the podcast because, I don't know, it just came too real. But it's real. We're doing a screening, and uh, this is the fruition of a dream of mine. So, you're not getting your average Rankin Review episode today. Like I said, you're going to hear an excerpt from an interview from uh, Jaron Francis, who's another local writer, producer, director, actor. Very, very talented fellow. Was good enough to let me use this interview to fill out my podcast to register because uh, I didn't want to leave you guys hanging. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the state of Saskatchewan film, and I know most of my listeners aren't in Saskatchewan, but I still think it would be worth you hearing about because... It really feels like art's undervalued here. And uh, I felt that way two years ago, and I kind of feel that way now. And to feel that way and still try to make your living in the arts, I don't know if I'm crazy or stupid or both. But I am your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and I do appreciate you listening. After that interview with Jaron, there's going to be a short excerpt from my uh, appearance on the terror table with Mitch Oliver and uh, Boosie as we uh, we reviewed in length on that episode, session nine. But what you're going to hear this episode is just an excerpt of me trying to actually take the pulse of the hosts of the terror table and see what movies they liked and didn't like. I brought some recommendations and it's a fun little conversation. So if you're not interested in the state of Saskatchewan film, you may want to stick around for those R&R recommendations. Please, please, please send me feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Please do what you can to spread the word about my podcast and about my feature film. And thank you guys so much for listening. I think that's one of the things that we'll be interested to talk about when we get into the actual process of writing it. Because when I sat down and decided that this was not going to be a play anymore, this was going to be a movie. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to write this movie that will be able to shoot in and around Saskatoon cheap and easy. That's what I was telling myself as I was writing this script. <laughs> that was your mantra for writing? <laughs> cheap well, and easy. But that's what I thought I was writing. And my point is is that that's not what I was writing <laughs> at all. That's what I thought I was writing. You know, Basically, any any story that has multiple locations that takes place largely outside is not going to be an easy shoot right? mm -hmm. and that's what you learn right I and I'm not complete newbie to this I did write, write and uh, co-produce a short film a few years ago that went to the Yorkton Film Festival um, but this is definitely the first time where I weighed in <laughs> past my waist and got 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 deep in it so so you spent uh was it over a year shooting, like just in the production phase, uh, off and on? About 14 months, mm -hmm. I would say, uh, with large gaps in between. Because of the nature of the story, it takes place partly in winter, partly during the summer. There's a, a couple different timelines, so just through necessity, we had to s sort of break up the shoot. So it wasn't purposeful. You didn't write something that you knew you'd be able to write or film over 
an extended like segmented period like well, that. Well, it made sense to approach it that way because we wouldn't have the means to just sort of do it all in one go. Mm-hmm. The real challenge after we had the script and we agreed this is what we're going to do was to find actors who are committed enough to stick it out because it was going to be a long shoot for no money. Mm-hmm. This is the pitch that you have to make, right? You have to sit down with someone you barely know and say, hello, my name is Larry. I've written the screenplay. I've never attempted a feature-length film before in my life. I would like you to consider the part of Kay. There's a little bit of sex and a lot of violence. My name is Larry. <laughs> oh, right, no money. No money at all up front. You just got to hit, <laughs> hit, hit the stuff that sounds good, like there's a little bit of sex. Yeah, there's a little bit of sex, a lot of violence. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that might be a way to end up with actors that, you know that are really committed. passionate about it, yeah. um, which is probably what happened. I, I don't know everyone who's in the movie, but I know Matt Burgess is. Yeah. And having worked with him several times... And having had conversations with him about um, what he wished was the case for the film industry in this <laughs> province, uh, and and how it just that wasn't the reality, um, I'm not at all surprised he ended up in the movie and was willing to do it for no money. But sacrifices were made on his part to do that. Uh, not the least of which, you know, he's no longer in the union. And mm. uh, when we were filming a large, the large part of his dialogue, he was in production at Shakespeare in the Saskatchewan. The man would do a show at Shakespeare in the Saskatchewan, drive out to Harris, almost an hour out of town, shoot all night long, drive home, get his son to school, sleep, get up, go to Shakespeare on the Saskatchewan, do the whole thing again mm-hmm. with a smile on his face. <laughs> like that is not an easy thing to find. And mm-hmm. and like that is that that's our secret weapon right there. And I think that the fact that I've been working in theater and, and I have all these ties from my drama department days definitely helped. I had resources around me that would help me put the film together relatively cheaply. Mm-hmm. And I recognize that not everybody has that. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit. Uh, we sort of just jumped in head first. But, yeah, we did. Sorry. <laughs> uh, let's maybe that's okay. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your your beginnings. I almost said humble beginnings for some reason. I don't even know <laughs> yes, why. Because uh, uh, here I am knocked by the door of forty, and I have hardly a, a pair of jeans without holes in them. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's I've made it. I've made it. Um, yeah. Well, you got a you have a film under your belt, so yeah. it can't be that humble. It, um, well, we got to wait till we see it though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, tell me. A little bit about um, how you got into this game. Like you, first of all, on Book of Trespasses, you were, I'm assuming, a writer and a producer. Yeah, uh, I'm co-directing uh, with Jared Berry, who's my sort of my partner. He uh, has Capico Films mm-hmm. in town here. They do mainly like adver- advertising and, and wedding videos up till this point. But um, I'm guessing narrative, like this is kind of the reason he got into filmmaking in the first place? Well, and that's the deal, and that's part of the reason we're able to do it so cheaply. Because he had this apparatus in place that had light and sound equipment and, and a camera, really. Mm-hmm. I had sound covered, that was sort of my department, I also podcast, so mm-hmm. I, I had, I was going to sort of dip my beak into that. But getting Jared to agree to, to help me out with this basically meant we had camera and lights for free. We no longer had to budget renting all of that shit, which made the movie possible, mm-hmm. essentially. It wouldn't have been... Uh, well, otherwise. it would have been possible, but we it would have gone back to shooting the dissection at a time and financing in between and just the constant And never of, knowing if you were going to be able to finish. Indeed. And uh, not being able to say, this is our end date to our actors, because that was important to me as part of the proposal. This mm-hmm. is what we want to shoot. This is when we want to shoot it. If all goes well, you'll be, we'll, you'll start here, you'll finish there. At least you were able to tell them, and no matter what, there won't be a check. <laughs> well, 
That was a I did not say that. I said there will <laughs> be no immediate check. Mm. I, if there's a pie to be split here, absolutely. Can I say that? Absolutely. Well, you will. did, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I will, I will spread the wealth. I am not, you know, I'm not imagining that I'm going to get rich off of this necessarily. The, mm-hmm. real, the real dream or hope would be that if it got some kind of limited distribution, if it was seen in a few film festivals, that some industry person could watch it and say... Really? They made this for, like, less than, you know, $25,000 for reels? What yeah. would happen if we gave these guys a budget? Yeah, <laughs> right? which has happened. I mean, that's a reaction that has got people further work, you know, historically in, film, yeah. in the indie scene. Um, so so you, started, you started as a playwright in terms of, like, was that kind of the main thrust of your... Uh, uh, well, what, what, I mean... You're a storyteller. My, my creative history. Yeah, yeah. I was recognized uh, for nothing in, in in high school that I excel at except for uh, English and writing. I, I did. I got a couple of awards for writing and stuff like that. Um, I always loved the, the drama department, and I was into interested in it. But I I had a confidence problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, this is of course back in the early '90s where it wasn't cool to be a nerd. You know, where you were actually made fun of for you know going being to being artistic. Yeah, yeah. I always used to baffle me. You know, all the all the jockey guys are like, yeah, art fag or whatever they want to call me. The they're two are go, kind of synonymous. Yeah, they're gonna go run laps after school, and I'm gonna go <laughs> give back rubs to the hottest girls in the school. Right. <laughs> so I'm losing. Yeah, people <laughs> express themselves in different ways. <laughs> so I definitely loved theater and had appreciation for it. Um, and uh, I, when I went to the university, I uh, went in as an English major, but got completely swept into the drama department. As often happens. Um, and I don't want to talk shit about the U of S or talk down about the U of S, but it's not. It was not the most incredible theater program. I mean, the spaces we were using were small, mm-hmm. and uh, you could tell that the university did not make that department any kind of yeah it was inadequate in a lot of ways Uh, every year i went there the the price went up and the quality of education went down i'm Mm -hmm. not again i'm not trying to shame anybody i'm just saying that as a state of fact Mm -hmm. um and the best learning i did there was independent because there was time uh, and apparently they don't do this anymore and hopefully i'm wrong but uh you were allowed to put up shows independently you could rehearse and yeah that had nothing to do with course credit no you could just do it and that was my undoing as far as my overall average <laughs> at university. But I was able to put up several of my own plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw direct. a few of them. Uh, yeah, Little Pleasures, Nevermore, uh, The Happy Thief. I saw Happy Thief, yeah. and I saw Human Ghost Stories. Yeah, so like, and then I did a few of them. And a lot of some people that I used in Book of Trespasses go back to those days. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's always nice to have someone you can pull from the Wayback Machine. <laughs> um, uh, but before I got into the writing plays, I was a little bit of an arty-farty poet guy. I think I went into this thing where I thought uh, poetry was cool and was going to get me laid. Did not pan out. Uh, no, it didn't get you laid? But I have volumes and volumes of really bad, young, <laughs> you know, angry young man poetry. Was it because your poetry was bad, or was it because that doesn't hold true about poets? It's just not true about poets. Poets it's, just it's, don't get laid? It, there, there is a romanticism that is put to a starving artist poet. That, that Wouldn't some... you be a really shitty poet? Like, your passion... <laughs> you're, you, you'd write bad poetry if you were getting laid all the time. I, <laughs> I suppose, what we'd be whining about. Um, yeah, I, I would actually have musings on nights when I don't sleep to take all those old poetries and compile them into a book called uh, My Short Life and Long Death as a Poet. <laughs> <laughs> but I decided to, to jump over to the plays, and being able to put them up in these black box theaters, very bare bones production values, 
Periactoids. again. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But uh, much like making this movie now, in a way it sort of feels like those days working back in the black box. I'm getting paid nothing. Nobody's getting paid anything. Everybody who's there is there because they want to be there yeah. and are helping me tell the story. And uh, that's my number one positive memory of school is doing that independent theater work. Um, I mean, I did learn a lot of stuff and I did meet some cool people and there were some very high quality teachers there. Again, I, I don't just want to be this a big shaming for the U of S, mm -hmm. but uh, I do agree. And I think this is true of most people, especially creative people. I did my best learning independently. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience when I was in school at U of S. Um, I mean, I, I did a lot of I was in a lot of the main stage shows, yeah. uh, so it wasn't as much about me putting up my own work, although I did do that a little bit, but um, the class work itself, I felt very, it was, it, its importance to me was very minimal. I wasn't on any kind of scholarship, so I didn't need to maintain any kind of average. Yeah. I was there for the ability uh, to, you know, have the practical application of what I was learning in the class and just being able to be in plays. I mean, that's the only reason anyone's like, oh, I'm going to be an actor. <laughs> is because they want to be on a stage, you know, and perform. They don't want to go read books about acting. They want right. to actually be in front of an audience and do they it. They want the applause. <laughs> yeah, I think there's definitely, that's there's an element of that. We like to convince ourselves that that's not the case. But um, So you so you put on some, some of your own work at U of S. Yep. You, um, you, you had work produced elsewhere too, right? Like, yep. didn't Human Ghost um, Stories go to Vancouver or something uh, at one point? There was a human traffic that we did out in British Columbia. It was part of their festival there. Uh, it was put up by Terrace Little Theatre okay. in the way north there. Um, yeah, I went up there. It was uh, nice to get an actual paycheck out of a script. That was the first for me. I had a seafood dinner when I got my, my check <laughs> just because I felt you didn't like frame something it? to do. No, I did not frame the it. The first I check the I got for writing, much. I framed, but I didn't frame the actual check. I made it printed. Like, it looks just like the check, and then I put it in a frame. Um, uh, so and, uh, we yeah I did a couple of fringe shows uh, collaborated on a couple of fringe shows I sort of after university dried up I uh, hitched my wagon to the dinner theater off Broadway dinner theater that was in Saskatoon and did a uh, four or five seasons of work there mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't do full length shows of mine but we did a lot of like cabaret sketch comedy shows and. Um, sort of work for offices, some office Christmas party wants to have entertainment, I would come in and, and, and write an outline for that and we would do a show for them. So I was still trying to stay in at least one wing in the arts as much as possible, but it was complicated by the fact that I fathered two children. <laughs> and uh you know was trying to buy a house and uh the real world creeps in yeah uh you say that anybody who is an interest in acting and i think creating writing there's an element of the same too there's ego to that but i think in the environment which we're in here in saskatchewan it goes past ego to almost a level of, of delusion you just keep going and hope that something will stick that sounds horrible to say it out loud but it's true you mean um, in terms of like shooting for the career you want if you want to stay in saskatchewan and get paid to live creatively you are you are playing some pretty steep odds I, I hate to be that blunt, but that's mm -hmm. honestly how I feel. But I do feel that this is my home, this is where I want to be, and in, until my boys are grown up, I'm not going to be super mobile that I imagine. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, whatever art I'm going to do, I'm going to do here. And uh, after many years sort of out of it and, and working in security and doing jobs that were somewhat soul-draining uh, and finding that, that 
the further away from the creative work I got, the less creative I was becoming. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, my output went way down as far as just writing even for me. And it didn't even matter back in the day if anyone was reading it. I was always writing something. And at some point during my late 20s, that died. And writing became something that I had to sit Force down yourself and, to and, do. and actually do it, you know. And mm -hmm. it wasn't like the old days where I could stretch out on a mattress and write for 12 hours, right? Mm -hmm. It was a couple hours here or there. It was starting and stopping in a mm -hmm. way that I'm not used to working. I, I, and I would, no writer really likes it that yeah. way. And I think it hurts. It hurts. It makes everything slow down, and you, it's really hard to get the mojo back if you're mm -hmm. stopping and starting. So um, once I finally got to this place, my, my wife is a nurse, and uh, she got her degree, and she went back to work. I sort of decided, okay, well, I'm going to dial back the work on uh, that I'm doing, and i got to get back into the creative world because it may not pay anything, but it's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. You had stories. They needed telling. I, well, and I, I felt like I'd done my time. You know, I sold shoes. I pumped gas. I worked at a telemarketing place. Like, you name a shitty job, I did it. And while I did it, I dreamed of doing something creative. Mm -hmm. And it was it's my turn, you know? <laughs> it's time, you know? Please, please. Uh, you know, and I love doing the fringe shows and I love doing the dinner theater as well. But again, we, we weren't getting paid seriously for acting there. You know, yeah. it was all... You know, I heard a rumor that the servers would make more than the performers. Depends on it depends on the show. Um, you, mm -hmm. We got uh, a percentage of the the ticket that that meant pennies per ticket so, per actor. But but if the show sold you know extraordinarily well, then you would get yeah, paid. There were shows more that were a lock usually over the Christmas season. The show would sell out consistently. I found the best way to make money was to split the difference because I waited tables there as well. Mm -hmm. uh, if I could get a small part where I just showed up for a couple scenes in Act Two, I could still wait tables. <laughs> All right? through Act One or what? Yeah, well, That's the, crazy. we don't do service during the show, right? So mm. we do service. The lights go down. The show starts. The lights, it just meant I didn't get the break with the rest of the actors during intermission. I had to you get had to up. do a super quick warm up. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, or I just have to run out and serve drinks really quickly. But it was awesome for the tips because yeah. people are, how can you do two things? But you're the waiter, but you were up there, but oh, here, take my money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Do you, uh, do you miss Off-Broadway? Like, it hasn't been around for, what, five years now? Uh, three or four, yeah, it's been a while now. Um, do you miss not I having miss, that outlet? I miss the stage and I miss, you know, having... The ability to do a show. A lot of the shows that we did there were very broad, door slamming farces. They're not the type of shows that I would write or, or typically get excited about, mm -hmm. but they're fun. But they're fun. You, you yeah. know, and um, yeah, I, I missed being able to stretch those muscles. And I do think that I became a much better actor in my time at the uh, Off Broadway than I did at the U of S. Ooh. Again, I got thrown in the deep end there. I like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm 21 and I'm playing for Shimon in Three Sisters, right? <laughs> Like, I'm I just not ready for it. We did Grapes of Wrath. I'm playing Pa Jode. I'm supposed to be playing this 60-year-old, uh, you know, weather-beaten farmer. And again, mm -hmm. I'm 21, yeah. you know? Yeah. The <laughs> and, William Shatner School of Acting. Learn to act by acting. I, I was working through the fear. All mm -hmm. of those main stage shows I did, I was more or less terrified throughout them. I got through it. I learned the lines. And I, I, I didn't bump into the furniture. But I certainly didn't excel there. With the dinner theater, because the runs that we were doing were so long, huge, yeah. Uh, instead of just doing, you know, six shows total, we would run four nights a week for a month and a half, right? 
So you get a little bit of butterflies for the first weekend because you want to make sure that everything's going to work. Yeah. But by the end of it, like it's old hats and you. We would be we would get really good deals on the food. It would either be two bucks a plate there, or if it was like the end of the night and the food was getting thrown out, it would be a free plate of food. <laughs> and like at Christmas, you're talking mashed potatoes, pierogies, turkey, right? Mm -hmm. And I would be like shoveling this shit in, and then like Larry, your calls up, and I'd run up on stage practically burping my food, no anxiety at all, like. <laughs> Uh, almost to the other extreme where it wasn't that I didn't give a shit but it got a little bit careless right yeah just that single number of shows uh, it got me comfortable on stage in a way mm -hmm. that I'd never been before mm -hmm. so <clears throat> but as far as writing no again I was doing PG level humor usually if I'm writing humor I'm gonna go dark and brutal you know I want to hurt somebody's feelings I like kind of angry that's just where you go man. typically that's where I go I can't tell you the amount of times I wrote a sketch that everybody laughed out loud while they read it and then said no we can't do that <laughs> <laughs> it happened a lot it's, it not, a lot. it's not for our crowd <laughs> yeah. um, so so off Broadway's now gone yes and uh, the film industry in Saskatoon is all but gone Unless um, you're corner gas, it seems. I suppose. <laughs> I did apply. We did apply for grants to help us with this film. We did not get any. Well, we applied for two. So it was, we didn't, I guess, fall over ourselves. But we, I'm surprised we, to hear there are even grants. Yeah, there's still a few, available. but there's very little to, to spread around. And mm -hmm. a big bite of it, make no mistake, did go to corner gas. You want to get financed in, in Saskatchewan? Produce the most successful television show in Canadian history. Yeah, they'll happily write you a check out of the taxpayers. I guess money. we shouldn't be surprised. I heard a rumor that a bunch of the budget for that movie came, or maybe it was marketing costs or something, came out of like Sask Tourism's. Well, there's no shortage budget. of ugly rumors, but I'd heard there's as much as said if they didn't get the money that they would shoot it in Alberta, and how would that look? Yeah. <laughs> Again, I wouldn't that's put it past me talking out of my ass. But, yeah, uh, but I mean that sounds totally plausible to yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, but what I wanted to ask was, with with those you know opportunities that you had in the past drying up was the decision to write a film like you you said earlier that it started as something else and then became a film yeah so was any part of it to do with the fact that uh it's there's a greater chance at reaching people with a film than there is with a play maybe and also more expectation that there might be a paycheck at the end of the rainbow if things go really well i think it's a combination of other things first of all i did the short film charming when we were, when the Off-Broadway was still open with a lot of my Off-Broadway people. And I had a good time doing it, and we got to go to the Yorkton Film Festival, and I got to see what the film festival was like. Mm -hmm. It was a nightmare screening. We had a 10-minute comedy film, and we screened right before a 40-minute documentary, and I'm not making this up, about photographers that go to hospitals to take pictures of dying babies <laughs> oh, so that the family can have something to remember them by. Nobody at that screening has any memory of Charming at all, I'm sure. <laughs> like, oh, it's just, I don't know who put those two together, but thanks. <laughs> um, how could that be a four? How could that sustain for 40 minutes? Oh, God. Um, uh, yeah, so it was still a cool experience, and I was overall happy considering it was our first at-bat. Mm -hmm. um, and so that sort of put the film thing in my in my head a little bit as a, a more real thing that I could actually consider doing. But I'm much more comfortable on the stage because I have much more experience in it. Mm -hmm. And I do think that my writing favors the stage, at least where my strengths were. I mean, I'm trying to sort of narrow it down. Is that because that's how you view it when you're writing? Like the, the immediacy of the stage? Like, or... The, the fact that Birdman just won Best Picture notwithstanding, typically in a motion picture, a scene that goes on for six to ten minutes mm -hmm. that's just dialogue 
doesn't happen unless you're Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. Like they, it's all about, especially in television these days, is getting getting to the meat of it as efficiently as possible with as few lines as possible. Um, your quicker cuts in a stage, you can sit there and you can you can say a, a four page speech and, the, speech and the audience will sit there and take it. On film, they won't. Right? I tend to sort of let the character beats out, you know, let, let us get to know the character for the things they say, as opposed to just telling you this is what they're about, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I tend to write long, um, and uh, that's much better for the stage than it is for film as a rule. Are there exceptions to that? Absolutely. But as a rule, especially in this genre, uh, as we were shooting Book of Trespasses, we're telling ourselves we're shooting a horror movie. And as we're cutting Book of Trespasses, we're telling ourselves this is kind of a supernatural thriller. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, some of the scenes, and we're going to be doing editing, we're going to be cutting it back and trying to sort of get it as efficient as possible. I think that they're good scenes on the page, and I can see them on, on the stage, but when you get to the film format, when it's a couple of floating heads talking to each other, and you got wide shot, close up, close up, wide shot, close up, close up. It's death. The yeah. movie stops. Yeah. You you either need like amazing fucking dialogue or amazing dialogue or or you know you you have to be trying something ambitious, which Birdman did, mm -hmm. right? Um, but that's the exception to the rule. People tend to like, especially with the genre movies, which we're trying to go something that will tell them a story that scares them fairly quickly and efficiently. I feel the same way about the sort of horror genre as I do about comedy. If you're going to go over 90 or 100 minutes, you got to earn it. I think you want to sort of get in and get out. In yeah, nobody genre. likes a long comedy. And that's a discipline that I had to teach myself. So going back to the question you asked five minutes ago, why I decided to turn the, this at the time play into a movie was mm -hmm. I'd lost my stage. The off-Broadway was gone, and I didn't know when or if the next stage was going to be coming. So it was primarily just the practicality of it? You thought it was more producible as a film? My original thought was to meet in the middle. Uh, this would be my transition from stage to film, right? I would write it as a play, and I would stage it as a play, but I would film it cinematically and basically teach myself to edit. You, you know, we'll, it'll be unabashedly a play. It'll be unabashedly a stage. It'll be unabashedly black box. But I will shoot it and cut it and edit it like a movie. And while I do that, I will tell my story, show my story to people, and teach myself how to piece a film together. So you were, like, checking things off a list of, like, I'd like to learn how to do this... I'd like to be able to show people this, and this would this doing this would deliver on all those things. Yeah, it's it, it's the middle bit version because whenever you film a play, you filmed Happy Thief, or you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, you typically got a camera at the back of the room, and you can hear the audience shuffling and coughing, and it's one static shot of the stage, and yeah. it's punishing to watch unless it's your best friend on stage, right? Yeah. Um, so instead of doing that, just lose the audience, shoot. Shoot the play on the stage, but shoot it like a film. And, like the and BBC how, does. Frequently. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And mainly as an exercise, and if it gets my story out there and people see the story, great. I will be further ahead uh, along. But the more I wrote this, and the more, you know, it, originally it was like campfire stories. People around the campfire sort of taking their turns telling stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, it would be like a staged anthology. But my first story, which was called Bullies which turned into Book of Trespasses, became way too big for an anthology. <laughs> so all of a sudden, it was just this. So you recognize this will, like, what I need to do is just write this as a movie. It's mm. not going to function otherwise. Yeah. Uh, uh, the other big benefit was knowing that I'd 
I had a few people already around me that were, were looking for another thing to do, and I was their writer friend guy. So mm -hmm. if I would show them something, and I think if it was halfway good, I had a chance of them saying, well, let's take a crack at this, right? There was a lot of people out there, and this is strange to me, because I'm a writer, I guess, but that their hearts seem willing. I want to make a movie, I just don't know what to make. You know? That was going to be my next question, was it, it, I would think it would be hugely daunting at this point. <laughs> point in Saskatchewan's, you know, the history of film here, to now just decide I'm going to make a full-length feature, mm -hmm. uh, especially something like this. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about it. I haven't seen the film because it's not available yet. But just from what I've heard from you and from other people I know who are involved in having seen the trailer, it looks like a pretty high-quality piece of work. Yeah. So um, I, I just feel like it must have been a really daunting decision to make to say, I'm going to dive in and do this. Was it the fact that you didn't encounter a whole lot of uh, resistance or was like was it that you had people who immediately said, yeah, I'll jump on board? I Yes and no to answer that question because I had people who were absolutely willing to make a film and um, yeah, and wanting to help me and willing to volunteer and, you know. Uh, I had a creative partner, I'm not going to name here, but uh, mm -hmm. that, that I met with regularly. We'd have, go and have a beer and talk about what it would be like when we made this movie and how we would approach certain scenes. The problem was a year went by and that's all we were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and enter Jared Berry. Uh, back when my uh, off-Broadway days, he's just a teenager who sort of was a hangabout at the theater. And uh, I was doing a zombie-themed fringe play, and I needed I a kid to be our whipping boy for Creeping Zombie Insanity. This was a crazy project from, from writing to stage. It was like th less than three months from concept to execution on this play, right? <laughs> it was just at a dead run the whole time, which was part of what was fun about it. Anyway, uh, I asked Jared to help me out with that play, and he said that he would do it if in exchange I would help him with his zombie movie. Now at the time he's like 16, 17 years old, and to be honest, I was like, yeah, absolutely, Jared, I will help you with your movie. But I had no belief that this would come to be. Fast forward a year later, and I'm running around with a t-shirt and a lightning bolt on it, killing zombies for Jared. And, and this is before Jared had gone to school and studied photography and studied film. This was like a super, His first super, crack, sort of. super rough indie project. But mm -hmm. what impressed me about Jared, to be honest, was not the finished product of Flatline, but the fact that he was a teenager, he said he was going to make a movie, and he did it. Mm-hmm. So fast forward again years later and um, Jared comes in with this offer basically, yeah, I will help you make this movie, but I want to, I want to have my creative voice sway. Mm -hmm. He's going to co-direct. He's going to run the camera. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to talk, I'm going to work with the actors. I'll, I'll be in charge of story. He'll be in ch charge of You had visual. like a, a Doug Lyman, John Favreau type, like yeah. singers <laughs> arrangement. Yeah. I'll, I'll work the story. He'll work the camera. It was basically, I mean, we, mm. we did, there was crossover, but, but basically that was the, the concept, mm -hmm. which made sense because Jared knew how to run the camera. <laughs> yeah, and had one. <laughs> and had one that yeah. we could use for free because before this we were thinking of renting it. But I had people who were originally involved with that who said, no, 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 we can't do that. Yeah. And I lost friends over it. I, like, before the movie started shooting, I, like, it had, it had cost me um, because mm -hmm. I was not in a position to say no to that offer. It was a fair offer. Mm -hmm. It was an unbelievably generous offer. And it was a way, instead of talking, to get from talking about the movie to actually making it. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't say no to it, so I didn't. And uh, I fully believe that if I didn't, I'd still be in pre-production today. Yeah. 
a lot of things fell into place, and I'm not like I sound like I'm a, such a whiner. I, and I realize I'm really lucky that I happen to have this circle of friends who are very supportive. Like, I did not make this movie by myself, and would never suggest such. Uh, you, you can't. Anybody who says that you you can make a movie by yourself, I, I just well, the difference is, I mean, lots of people. I I think they're right when people say you can make a movie on your phone. You know, anyone can make a movie. It's just the majority of them will be shitty. I made a movie when I was talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I made a, I made a, tried rather to make a feature length film when I was in my early twenties that I wrote and directed, and you know, I had like student actors that I worked with that were in it, and a couple um, filmmaker friends along the lines of what you're describing with Jared, who you know had some filming expertise, and people would come in and sort of switch off and that kind of thing. But I tried to do it all myself, basically, like yeah. wear too many hats, and it just didn't go anywhere good. We f- we shot a film; it was just garbage because not everyone's movie is going to be good, you know. Like, well, I think that doing a couple passes and having my experience with both the short and Jared's first first attempt uh, at a feature sort of helped me sort of be a little bit more prepared to what a large task it was mm-hmm. you shouldn't kid yourself going into it the the size of it is 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 mammoth mm-hmm. <laughs> right and uh i wonder if i knew how mammoth and, and what the cost would be you know would i have still pressed on probably yes <laughs> but i don't know so did that factor into you filming in like a chunk here and then a month goes by and, or was it that was always part of the plan i never imagined that i would be able to raise enough money or have enough money at one time to do it all in a chunk which was helpful in splitting the story was set up in two different timelines a person mm-hmm. is you know being told a story that happened three years that's going to explain why this terrible thing is happening to him very basic plot is that this kid is being held hostage by his boss at a bible camp his boss has tied him to a chair and is beating the shit out of him. And uh, he wants to know why. Mm-hmm. And his boss tells him the story. And the story happens three years before anything else. So right there we have the two timelines to split. And we also have one scene that's sort of randomly interjected that actually happens in the wintertime. Sort of standalone sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always knew those three pieces would be three separate lengths of shooting uh, that would happen in three different time periods. That would give us downtime in between to both lick our, our wounds <laughs> and, and recuperate mm-hmm. and if necessary raise the funds collect the props secure the locations um, it was just the practical way to do it and that was part of the plan from the writing stage once I was decided this was a film uh, doing it all in one stretch if I have no money unrealistic so did you did you consider that at one point like did you guys when you finally said from the point you said this is happening I'm doing this film yeah. did you at least attempt that idea in the planning stage and say, now this is what the production timeline would look like if we shot this all in, say, like two and a half weeks or something. I quit my job and we film for three weeks and then there's another so-and-so months of like prolonged post-production that I can eke out however I see fit. Like, was that even an option or did you just nix that right from I the I don't jump? think, uh, it was never really looked at too seriously, I don't think. Not that I remember. I'd have to talk to Gareth and Jared about all of the stuff that we started. Basically, we shot... August and September 2013, and then we shot uh, a length chunk right around Christmas and New Year's from 2013 to 2014, and the rest of it was shot throughout last summer. Yeah, you did like pickups and stuff, right? Yeah, well, and another whole timeline was covered there. Mm. That's where we covered a lot of the really ugly, violent prosthetic and the burns and the different... You gotta leave the violence till last in case you horribly <laughs> scar one of your lead actors. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> one of your unpaid lead actors. Yeah. 
But it's funny, like, again, going back to me talking about I thought I was writing something that we could do cheaply. You know, it's set in a, in, in a forest and at a camp and in, in houses mm-hmm. and a couple of different hospitals. That was very problematic that I had two distinct institutions that we had to rec- <laughs> differentiate. Mm-hmm. Um, but just having that many locations from a production standpoint complicated 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 things immensely um whereas if you can you know get that sweet one room thriller script which is what you're really looking for you know if you can if you can write a screenplay that takes place all in one house that you have that sustains that, that, that sustains works. a story that holds yeah. it that they're, they're they're locked in the house overnight they're ghost hunting or whatever and they're in this mm-hmm. one location overnight from a production standpoint your budget and your production is going to be helped immeasurably mm-hmm. and that's a reality of super low budget filmmaking um, I didn't I didn't paint myself into that box but uh, if I was to roll up my sleeves now and say Larry's gonna sit down and write a film that I can make for no money in Saskatoon that's probably where I would go. I you would try to find. I would try to find a location, and that goes right back to my play, my my play background too. Mm-hmm. I have a, the human ghost stories is set entirely in a bar. Mm-hmm. So if I want to do a film version of human ghost stories, that's workable. I mean, a bar set's not easy to come across, but once you built that bar set and you have that bar set, you can shoot your movie there. Mm-hmm. And from a filmmaking standpoint, and from the headaches that we had in production shooting in the dead of night. <laughs> And the, you know, it, 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 oh, I, if you could shoot the whole thing in a soundstage, of course, that's ideal. But I, I have learned so much. Like, there's nowhere you can be in Saskatchewan where you can't hear the highway somewhere on the <laughs> mic. <laughs> you know, uh, we always plan when we're shooting night shoots. You got eight hours of night. Well, you know what? In July and August, you've yeah. got maybe five. five, six best. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's five before the light starts looking markedly like different from what it's been all through the night. One of the truest uh, cliches I came across actually reading about before we started production was prepare yourself for the three movies that you're about to make. <laughs> the movie that you write, the movie, the movie that you shoot, yeah. and the movie that you cut. So you're... I have not found anything that is more true than that that I have read so far about film. So when you were, okay, like you already implied that when you were filming, you were filming a horror and now you're editing a supernatural <laughs> thriller. thriller. Yeah. So what were you writing? Uh, I think I, when I was writing it, this was a scary movie, you know. Um, but uh, it, we really spend time on the characters. We, you really get to know Duncan Stewart, the main character, so that uh, if nothing else, if no one else's behavior makes sense in the movie, you you know that guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of takes that takes time. When we first meet him, he's drunk and he's belligerent and he's beating the shit out of a kid. And then we could go to his backstory and he's this sad, sack, pathetic guy who doesn't look like he could hurt her fly and uh we learn what 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 led to that transformation mm-hmm. um and that character arc is more traditional what you're gonna see in a drama or a thriller than you're gonna see in a typical horror movie mm-hmm. it's not friday the 13th it's not evil dead but i'd like to think that fans of both of those movies could enjoy this mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah um it's 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 gonna take its time a little bit, and it's gonna be more of a character piece than it is slam bam action, mm-hmm. and that is if it's a weakness, it's a weakness of my writing and my script. But um, I think that the what that makes it unique too, in a way, the fact that um, 
there is enough to keep you interested. There's violence happening. Like we, we do the Shakespearean concept to try and make sure that we keep the people who are there for the for the tits and the blood yeah. get paid off early in the script, right? <clears throat> if we're not going to give them the full meal right away, we'll give them the promise of something right away to mm -hmm. keep them watching. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sort of how the story is told that's going to, to make it interesting. So that was all writing phase, that's though, right? right? Yeah. So then what what was different in the filming stage? Like, was there actually a moment you reached where you thought to yourself, we can't shoot what I envisioned while writing, therefore it had to change? Or was it a more organic, gradual thing? I'm curious how you get from the the idea, and because, you know, I've written plays myself, and, and uh, you sort of know that it's not going to end up what you envision while you're writing, but that doesn't because you don't know what it's going to end up as, it doesn't really affect how you write. At least it doesn't for me. So I'm curious how you get to the such a different thing, you know, once the editing process is done. There is a, this is going to be a convoluted way to answer that, but, but here it is. There's a centerpiece scene in this movie, which happens around a campfire, which is originally going to be where the whole shebang of this was going to take place, like on a stage with a campfire or a fake fire. Mm -hmm. But... Terrible things have happened, and we've had a, a moment of calm. And our two main characters sit across from this fire, and they talk to each other. I believe as scripted, it's nine pages. And on the page, and in my mind, it sustains beautifully. But again, when you get to that, on the day when you're shooting it, and it's the, the middle of the night, and you're racing against the sun coming up, you realize... What is the essential? What's the core? What yeah. is the essential things that we need to do here? How many times do I kind of narratively repeat myself? Somebody says something negative about a person and then gives a couple of examples to back it up. You know, well, do you need those two examples, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, on the page, I felt like I needed them because they were there till the day we shot. But there were a few scenes that, as we shot them, I was saying to myself, "This isn't going to be in the final cut." Mm. Um, and the other thing is storyboarding, which we did quite a lot. I would say about 90%-ish of what we shot was storyboarded. So uh, Storyboarded quite like intensely? Like really... Uh, that I had roughly in my head. If I, if I had a good clear image in my head, I would try to draw it on, mm -hmm. on the page. I am a horrible artist. Yeah. I think I will... Uh, you've seen some of my storyboards. They're hilarious. But, but it's enough for Jared to understand what the hell I'm trying to, to, to talk about. Um, but then you get to the editing page. We, we would do those storyboards. That would be our start point. We make mm -hmm. sure we got those covered. And then if we want to try a few more angles, after those are covered, do whatever we want with the time allotted, right? Mm -hmm. But if we do the storyboards, we know we have that. So, yeah. Um, I, 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 there was a, more, a few scenes, but definitely that big centerpiece scene, which was sort of the moment where I felt everything will stop and everybody can rest and take a breath before the... The fit hits the shan again, right? Mm -hmm. But that rest really needed to be probably two or three beats, not not nine, not nine. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, for some reason, yeah, I just didn't see it till we were we were on the set. It's a really common thing. I, I heard a great story once about uh, um, the scene in The Fugitive uh, where Harrison Ford is like he gets to the. It's right before he jumps off the dam the train, or whatever, right, right, right. and when Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, character finds him and confronts him in the script they each had like there's about two pages of dialogue there in exchange before he before the exact same thing happens right. 
And then on the day of, and nothing had been, you know, spoken of uh, about it being poor dialogue or anything like that. I think it was as simple as on the day Harrison Ford was maybe like really cold in the water <laughs> on set, Let's and he's like, "This is a shitty place to be filming." And he said, "Really, all of this is just like me saying I didn't kill my wife, and him saying I don't care." Yeah, that's like all it has to be. And the director, you know, was, I forget the director's name, but he's somebody who was like, well, I'm not arguing with Harrison Ford. So he's like, all right, let's film that. It works. Yeah, and the efficiency is great. And the scene probably, I mean, who knows, but the scene probably plays better that way. And I do think that's the discipline of film, and especially, I think, television uh, is really, really bearing that back. You can breathe, stretch more. It's a little bit more literary, I guess. It's closer to novel writing on stage than it is to screen. And if you want to sit down and write a novel, that's fine. But, um, you know, this is me. You can't get every precious detail out. And the writerly instinct is to want that. And I do find that there were certain things. And again, maybe it wouldn't be the case on the next project. That uh, once I found myself on the day, I would hear the line and say, we really don't need that. I thought I'd locked down the script, but apparently I hadn't. I don't need that line. Mm-hmm. And then again in editing. You, you, we have our storyboards and we start there but it sort of comes on which is the better shot and, and uh, can we see equipment in that shot? Oh we can so I guess we're not using that <laughs> shot <laughs> Oh it's got to be one in every film you know you got to have your like boom at mic sneaking least, at, at least, least one yeah if it's going to be a good horror movie yeah uh, and you know stuff you just learn to live with. We we talk about continuity all the time in the editing room. There's like continuity stuff that that's like, well, there's not much we can do about that. And there's continuity stuff that somebody might notice that. But if they notice that, to hell with them, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, especially when there's not really anything you can do about it. There's a scene I believe where Matt's uh, doing a doodle, and we during the wide shot and to the close-ups, he's holding a blue pen to a red pen. And then back to blue. And just in the wide <laughs> shot, it's a blue, and in the close-ups, yeah. it's a red for some reason. And it's just like, we're not reshooting that. We're not reshooting that. Like, literally, that set has been torn down. Like, that, that place doesn't exist You could anymore. probably find somebody for a couple thousand dollars to digitally change the pen, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, no. Um, but that's the stuff we're talking about in post-production. I have a, a shot that was seemed simple. Person gets out of a tent, looks to her right, and in the distance she sees smoke rising in the horizon. And mm-hmm. he tried and tried to get that shot, but he's like, it was Saskatchewan prairies, right? You light a fire and it just goes straight Oof. away, yeah. it just flies away. You need to find an absolutely perfectly pristine still day and then douse some wet leaves over a bonfire to maybe <laughs> get what we were what we were getting at. And never got it. And we still haven't solved that hundred percent if we're gonna have to like digitally add smoke we have the shot without smoke essentially yeah. is what we have right now and, we and it doesn't play without smoke hey eh? it just doesn't achieve what's it, required of the because it, it makes sense that that's why she would go in that direction mm-hmm. right um, it, yeah it's just a weird story beat that you have to live with but again going back to the story you write the story you shoot and the story you edit absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. the movie is made in, to a large extent in the editing room Make no mistake. Yeah. Um, the only thing that the days that you're shooting are the high pressure for is that you can work with the materials you have. You cannot work with the materials the you, don't. you don't have. It's yeah. the shots that you want to have but don't. We need to cut to an exterior of the car right now. And we don't have that shot. Mm-hmm. So, so we're staying in the car. <laughs> do you think that this will, um, if you go on and write, write hopefully more more films down the line, is this going to inform your writing? Like, are you? Can you take something away from from this along the lines of 
I, I mean, are I you going to write more in imagery now as a result, or how is it going to affect your... I think I will write more efficiently for the film just because I have more experience at it now. Mm -hmm. And um, there's one thing to sort of respect my voice. You know, um, that sounds already in, in pretentious or whatever, but I tend to write long. I tend to do that, and mm -hmm. uh, that's my my instinct. I will My first draft will be ridiculous, and I will just pare back, pare back, pare back. That's most writers, I think. Yeah, and... Uh, and like most writers, they're their own worst editors. That's why, you know, writers need to find an editor that they really respect. Mm -hmm. Someone who's okay with telling them the tr blunt truth Because <laughs> you, you can't tell it to yourself, right? Uh, I, and I, I noticed that with the actors, too. The, the, Jared calls it, there's just the Larry Turner phrase. It sounds okay coming out of my mouth. He can imagine me saying it. But for some reason, the actors uh, will have to move a couple words around just to make it make sense to them. Mm -hmm. And I have, I'm not precious about it typically on the day. If there's a line that I'm like, yeah, you're, you're off there and we need this to be right, then I will definitely hit that. But I haven't been precious about Word Perfect and I've certainly not been a strict. There's no, no diva mentality ever anywhere on our set. Well, like, that's a... That's something you can probably have confidence in, too. Like, if you have people, again, like you've described, that you have primarily because you know they're passionate because yeah. they wouldn't be doing it if they weren't, then you could probably, I would think, have more trust in them that, that little choices like that that they feel the need to make aren't coming from a place other than logic, you know? Like, if there's a logic in it for them that's actually worthwhile. And if anybody has that weak moment on the set where they say, look, I'm not getting paid for this... Uh, <laughs> Well, did that then, happen? Nobody's getting paid for this. I'm sure it did, but I'm not going to point fingers at anybody. I, <laughs> I have nothing but love for everybody involved in yeah, this. Yeah. Um, there were some hard days. <clears throat> I had one day in particular I never imagined I would I would leave set while we were shooting. I would mm -hmm. never imagine it. But it was like the third or fourth night of night shooting, and I was like feverish. I couldn't keep a thought in my head. Like I was just... A, liability. Mm -hmm. So that last hour, that last night, I said, I'm going to go pack up the goods and try not to fall over. I'm sorry. It's Jared, finish this for me. Mm -hmm. And I feel shame saying that now. Looking back at it, I just power through for another hour, Parsons. But at the time, I honestly couldn't form clear thoughts in mm -hmm. my head. Like, it was bad. It was bad. Um, and there was there were a few low moments, uh, frustrating moments on, on set. But at no point could you say, you know, Shut up, take this seriously. We're ruining the fucking take, right? Because everybody is volunteering their time and so much hard work and energy has been put into it that no, we're not going to do that. I'm sure there were days where we were sick of each other and we were happy to go our separate ways at the end of the day, but mm -hmm. I don't remember any real tension on set. There were days that we were nervous about because we weren't sure if we were going to be able to accomplish what we, we needed in the time we had mm -hmm. or, you know, when the fire is not working right and we have to have we have to have an actual official person there for the day we're doing the burns uh, to make sure everything was safe and nobody was getting killed. So we had to shoot it that day. She was booked for that day. Here yeah. she was. So the sky's not matching what we shot yesterday at all, but... Um, so what? Yeah, <laughs> right. Keep it tight on the fire. <laughs> We're burning today. God, but um, just like again, going back to doing those plays, when I learning how to put up a stage play by myself.
mm-hmm. quite dangerously, I'm sure, uh, hanging lights and, and moving lights at the in the North Studio by myself All at alone, like yeah. three in the morning. Everything you're not supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason that they don't let students do that anymore. That's probably exactly why. There's liability issues. Somebody it's... drops a light or drops themselves. And yeah. Why was there not a professor there? Well, and I mean, those issues always existed, but I think at some point, some administrator changed, you know? Yeah. Uh, somebody's a job was filled that it wasn't that way before and then i think it was just like party time's over you know and they just kiboshed it all those spaces will just stay empty i remember we tried to put up a uh, show with a bunch of the graduates from the department and we asked if we could use the space to record and this was within a few months of us graduating the program Mm -hmm. we were basically said you know no we would rather they stood empty. What if you broke a window? <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make much sense to me. Once, once, once that semester was over and our, our, our they got our money, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, to hell so, with you from this point. Well, you know, it, uh, even if they would, would just, well, we offered to rent it to you, but no, it's just going to stay empty. Those those rehearsal spaces will lie dormant because we can't be bothered to rent them out. <laughs> just boggles my mind. I wonder what's involved with renting them out that's so troublesome. University like, administration, I'm sure. The paper shuffle is intense to some degree. Like because there's gotta I, I, I don't think there's no reason. Mm-hmm. You know, like there must be something inconvenient for somebody or just like maybe it's just a matter of the work that they have to do that they yeah. wouldn't have to do if these spaces are empty. Well it's but um, it seems completely the opposite energy and intention of what everybody involved in this film would have had, you know, is people people recognizing what the uh, the realities of the project are going to be, but then making the conscious decision to do it anyway. Yeah. And like somebody who works who works at the University of Saskatchewan in the drama department, I feel like should be able to see those same realities and make the same conscious choice. Yes, it's going to be more work, but why would, yeah, like, why would I be in this job if it doesn't, you know, if I don't seize the opportunity to help ex-students or current students or, you know, anyone who wants to use our facilities? Well, and that's that's not just the university. I find it frustrating. I have a friend who's really actively trying to find a good theater space Mm -hmm. to use, and, um, they're either like appallingly expensive or like there are spaces like the university or castle theater at, at Aiden Bowman there. Yeah. That is a beautiful theater and it is not used for anything because the rent is ridiculous. Yeah. Like punishingly. So you cannot make a profit in that space. So here we have this gorgeous theater that, that is used for school assemblies. Yeah. It just sits there empty. And I, I don't know what it's like now, but when I looked into it years ago as an option for producing, um, there was, uh, the the people involved in the rental, it was like their goal was to make it stay unrented. Yeah, you know, like they had some kind that's of personal stake in it being empty. They would. I can't imagine what that stake empty. is. But but why? Like I I, 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 I found <laughs> for like weeks afterwards, I would run through in my mind like there's got to be reasons because like what could this person be gaining personally? You know by making sure that people don't get to use their theater. Yeah. Like, there's got to be something. Like, what, is some, what does a person get out of that? I wish I could tell you. I yeah. do not have all I the never answers. found an answer. I never, <laughs> yeah. I never was able... And but, nobody I know who's worked there or has tried to work there has been able to come up with an answer either. But the, the Manhattan Ballroom, people have tried to make a go of that space a few times, <clears throat> which is great if you want people to drive, like, 30 minutes of highway mm-hmm. before they drink their wine and watch the show and then drive back. Mm-hmm. And the whole room has got, like, 
pillars. Pillars that, everywhere. That, that sort of yeah, bisect everything. Good. There's no good sight lines. Like, um, I, I wish that we had another, you know, space other than obviously Persephone, which has some beautiful spaces, but they're actually in use, so I will give them a pass, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, we, there isn't a lot of options uh, to affordably rent theater space in, mm-hmm. in town, so that's another one of the hurts of, of, of the off-Broadway shuttering its doors. Like I said, I lost my stage. I always found it easier to write when I could imagine the stage I was putting the play up on. Totally, yeah. If it feels... As soon as, as, soon as I have a production date, yeah. like for when it's going up, my output like triples. <laughs> and it, my, my good pages don't triple, but like just getting the shit out of the way immediately increases. If I know I'm doing a show in the North Studio with black boxes and, and, and whatnot, I, I can sort of see in my head, you know, as I'm writing, how, how it's going to look already. Mm-hmm. And that just gives an ease. Whereas before that, when it's just some nebulous space, any theater space, yeah. you, you can imagine, you know... Or you find yourself being like, or is this even a play? Yeah. Maybe this <laughs> yeah, is a exactly. book. Maybe this is a movie. Yeah. It could be anything at this point. It can yeah. be dangerous to spend too much time in the... Uh, in the heart part of writing rather than the head part of writing, I find. Like, I've literally spent years before in the heart part of writing just because I could, because yeah. there was no boundaries being placed on it. And you don't need any detail. Like, you don't need every detail. <laughs> One of the characters in, in in my play, I can tell you, it's not, no, never come out in the script at all, but I know for a fact from my personal exploration in writing that people were so scared of him that they wouldn't trick-or-treat at his house when they were kids, right? <laughs> I'm not going to work that detail into the script, but it's in my brain. And so this, at some point I made that note, you know, at some point, it's real to me, right? It informed the rest. It informs people. the rest. Yeah. But you don't need that detail, you know, it's, you know. So it sounds like overall, the process of making the film gave you a sense of the essentials that you didn't have before. Is that, would you say that's true? Well, it was a crash course. That's how you do it. I learned by doing, like I said, um, this was my first attempt at, at, directing a feature-length movie, and uh, I learned as I, as I went. And I think that the movie will look good, and I owe that almost entirely to Jared, and the production values and the props are going to be good, and I owe a lot of that to my friend Gareth, who put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into it. Um, so at the end, um, my contribution, other than the original screenplay, what I was learning was, you know, this is what a stage play looks like, this is what a film looks like, and this is the film that I've made in the middle. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to bear it down, and it is going to be a very watchable film. I'm not trying to talk people out of my movie here. It's not like I'm shit-talking my own work here. <laughs> I think it's unique, and I think How writerly of you. It's going to be... It's an interesting story well told. I, I'm the backtracking, I'm pulling my foot out of my mouth. But uh, it's mine. It will definitely be... You know, a Larry Parsons joint, as it were. Spike Lee puts his like stamp on it. Like this is, I think, a fairly accurate assessment of where I'm at right now, as mm-hmm. far as as my my screenwriting. And will the next one be better? I hope so. You know, um, I think it'll be different. I think that I would definitely make a point of telling a faster paced story and go into that knowing. Yeah, I think that the film wants the pace to be faster than stage, as a rule. Not a, I mean, again, Birdman just won Best Picture, so my mm-hmm. head could be bar up my ass. But uh, did you find Birdman to be a slow-moving film? Not at all. But uh, by 
typical movie standards it mm. is there's like that it seems like that movie typical movie movie standards of today yeah that's the true. thing it's a bit of well i was gonna say it's like a holdover it's not in any way a holdover from the past but pacing wise that's not very indicative of where movies are today that's something that's changed as a result of the people consuming the movies and but what's being catered to birdman felt like i don't know a dozen or so scenes all shot in one elaborate piece at a yeah. time and it was as much the flourish and the style uh, as it was sort of the, the they're talking about similar things that we're talking about sort of the meat and potatoes of the work mm -hmm. of putting on in this case a play mm -hmm. um but I, I think that whereas i sort of shy away when i start sounding like an art wank i, I think that the birdman really embraces that the whole movie's about the art exactly wank. Yeah. like the edward norton character is like a complete asshole and yet everything he does is in service of the play mm-hmm uh, so it's interesting. I didn't think we had. Well, maybe I was the complete asshole on this. Set. <laughs> Who knows? What's the saying? If you if you uh, encounter one asshole in a day, then you met an asshole. If you encounter twelve, you're the asshole. <laughs> right? I've never heard that, but it's <laughs> very true. Right? You don't have to convince me. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm very proud of the footage that's come out of this. I, I'm, I'm still trying to recover from me talking about this movie being slow-paced or whatever, but uh, <laughs> I'm very happy with the images that we got and for the amount of money that we put into it. It looks amazing. Yeah, that was what that was honestly what struck me the the most in, intensely about it. I guess when yeah. I watched the trailer was I was like. Uh, I mean, not to exaggerate too much, but my jaw actually did drop a little bit because the idea of a group of first-time filmmakers just kind of like um, all coming together for the reasons that you guys did because you had a shared interest, shared passion, and not really any kind of means to do it in a different way. Like this is what was available. This is you had to just like learn as you go and and do the best you could, right? Yeah. Usually that doesn't net the kind of footage that I saw <laughs> in the trailer. You know, it it it's a different feeling movie when you see the trailer and this. And this looks yeah, and I think that a couple it, levels above that. The production values are good, and and uh, that's going to help us a lot. I, I think that whether or not you like the story when you watch the movie, I can't predict. I've seen the footage so many times, I have no, I have no, no real place to put, to stand. I don't yeah, know yeah. anymore. I just don't know. But whether or not you like the story, I can confidently say you will say that's well shot. And that, you know, there's some really good acting in it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even worried about saying that, you know. Uh, you, you'll connect with the story or you won't. And that's the truth of any movie. Um, it, to get positive about it, because I've sounded super fucking negative this whole time. Yeah, sell me on this movie a little bit. Uh, well, this isn't selling the movie. This is just a general truth. In the maybe this is why I like to think of it as a horror movie and not a supernatural thriller. But uh, the history of horror movies it happens fairly maybe once or twice every decade. A group of friends will get together and make a movie with the bare means they have available, and they will they will just somehow pull it out, and somehow it will get distribution. It happens with classic horror movies. Night of the Living Dead is in that category. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is in that category. The Blair Witch Project mm -hmm. is in that category. The Paranormal Activity is in that category. The first one, anyway. Yeah, the first one. Um, these are friends saying, how can we make a movie cheaply? And using the parameters of the box that we're in, how can we make this movie as effective as possible within the parameters of this, mm -hmm. this box? Mm -hmm. 
And uh, I'm not going to say that I I expect to be as successful as those films. (laughs) But it's not unprecedented. Mm -hmm. You know, every now and then a little horror movie that could comes along. I mean, get back to the realistic, I mean, how many independent horror movies are released every year? (laughs) Yeah. We're another fish in a big ocean of of movies, but um, I'm proud of the product. And I think that if you're into movies and arts and anything in Saskatchewan, well, first of all, you should just support it out of just that. (laughs) Out of of, it exists. There's not a lot of uh, support it, but I think... Uh, you won't have to know me to like the film, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that if you like that genre, you will like the movie. That's where, that's the goal. How can I not say that? I didn't set out to make a movie that, that people aren't going to like, you know? I like it. <laughs> and I hope other people do. I think it might be that simple, honestly. I mean, I think the, one of the biggest traps you can fall into when you're creating, uh, telling any story, is thinking too letting too much of your brain be about who it's going to appeal to or why it's going to appeal to them rather than just focusing on something that's interesting to you. What will they think of this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you run... The the risk you have to accept is that nobody might be interested in it. You You might be a person with tastes that are so niche that literally nobody gives a shit about your story. That's a risk. Yeah. But if you can accept that risk at the outset, I think your chances of telling a story that's worth seeing yeah. go up immeasurably compared to if you were just like, now who, who, do, who can I get to come watch this, you know? Yeah. Which I think happens too often. Well, um, is there anything else you want to... Um, we've been talking for about an hour. Is there okay. anything else you kind of want to sell the audience on? Well, I hope I didn't come across as this total negative creep or whatever i mean i have to have optimism because i did this yeah right i don't think it's you could same. do this without being an optimist it's the to same some thing you're talking about actors you know nobody being an actor is basically yelling to the world like me like me <laughs> and uh i think that they, and having them yell back no yeah, yeah no uh well they want to yell back no as much as they want to yell back yes that's the really scary part mm-hmm. the, the writer is that except for uh, i find that the writers are a little bit more gentle flowers right like um I, my ex- personal experience i had we did a couple of shows after i'd graduated university actually did get the space for a couple of shows and i got three reviews i got ps magazine just utterly blew me just loved the show and the sheaf based i remember the quote was like the which only, which play was this uh, i believe this was human ghost stories and that was the, uh, the well, that was the thief, first the second time we did the happy thief and it was twinned with, I think, the human ghost stories that time. We basically okay. redid them after, and Sky and Josh were involved. But um, so we got these two glorious reviews from those two papers, and then Cam Fuller took a wet hot shit all over me. Like it was brutal. It was a personal attack, basically. Oh no! Uh, and it was like I didn't like this play because it was written badly. Was basically the thesis of it. I remember it very well because it completely made me forget those other two positive reviews, mm. and it shared the same lifestyle section where he gave a positive review to the fucking glimmer man <laughs> a steven seagal steven seagal and keenan ivory wayans correct 
You know, I mean, in that review, he was like, you know, if you're into this sort of thing, it is what it is. Enjoy. But when it came to this play that I poured my heart and soul into, this guy, I don't know why these talented actors would pick this incompetent guy to do. And uh, it hurt me. And truth be told, until Book of Trespasses, I didn't work with those people again. I was, I was, I was, I was in dinner theater licking my wounds, right? Uh, I remember the bad review and I, I live with the bad review and I think that's the writerly impulse. You'll always believe the negative review and uh, or it's at least it's a positives. yeah it's a struggle to not place more uh, but more. to go full circle to where I started with this I still have the optimism because for some reason in spite of the government of Saskatchewan standing <laughs> against me and uh, in spite of me you know I may I may starve and have holes in my clothes but my boys are fed I definitely want that clear and said that I, I am responsible <laughs> for my family <clears throat> But I still press forward, and uh, if nothing comes of Book of Trespasses, it might not be right away, it might not be a year from now, but there will be another project. Just don't know, that was going to be my next question, is what's next? I mean, you got to finish editing Book of Trespasses, you got to do the whole festival circuit, I'm assuming, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, By yeah. circuit, I mean like the three festivals that you can maybe get into that are nearby. Yeah, you know, that kind of yeah. Thing. Um, we're basically in post-production this year. So knowing that that's the turnaround for a project like this, I mean, even if your next project, assuming will be a, a smoother um, process, how, do, how does that affect like going into the next thing, just knowing like the, the enormous timeline that you're dealing yeah. with from conception to, to people seeing it? Again, going to my optimism in spite of the words you're hearing, um, I guess in my head, the next time around, we would go in with a budget. And we would go in with a very real plot and a crew. You know, basically we had three guys and our cast, mm -hmm. and then whoever else we could get to volunteer on a given day, but those people would be different on every day. We'd be starting from zero with them, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I guess in my head the next movie would be well-financed. I have this idea, I've even started writing a few scenes of it, sort of it's a, it's a marriage. In my head, if, if I was a, a cigar chomping studio producer, I would pitch it like, it's uh, Waiting for Guffman meets From Dusk Till Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> And then people would hand you money. Yeah, give me, give me my money. Yeah, yeah. Basically, my idea was like a theater troupe that gets hired for a gig, and basically they're the entertainment and the meal, right? So then I get to, I get to basically relive my my dinner theater days and all the, mm -hmm. the sort of fun sketch, lame, fun slash lame sketch comedy that we did, and marry it with sort of a, a more vibrant action horror mm -hmm. sort of environment. Uh, but that would require money, and I know that. Uh, so if I had money, maybe that would be my next project. But if not, I, I'm I'm sure it would probably be. Uh, either a one room type of thriller again, if I can find a location and work a story around that. I think I would do that, or uh, I could even backtrack and go back to my original idea and either write a new play or take one of my old plays mm -hmm. and put it up in a good space like Castle Theatre and, and, and film it. So that kind of leads into my next question, which was, um, what, would you, what, what advice, if any, would you give to filmmakers like yourself who are really just jumping in because you got to start somewhere, you know? Would it be along the lines of, like... Um, take into account what's going to be doable, like take advantage of what you can, the choices you can make before you're into the project. Because once you're filming a script, the choices become um, between, like paring down and saying, what do we really need here? Which is a much narrower field to choose from. Yeah. Um, but before you start production, it's kind of like the world's your oyster, you know? You can say from the outset, 
I want to do this story, but it costs money, as you said. Yeah. So I'll just do a whole other story. Is that kind of the um, most useful choice that a filmmaker can make? There's there's a lot to be said for doing an ambitious story on a, on a small budget, but just be real. You know, if you can't make Independence Day, don't make Independence Day, right? Yeah. Um, I, I reviewed on my podcast, uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, the immortal classic. But... They, there's like two scenes that was actually shot in New York and there's 10 minutes of the movie that takes place in New York. And my position is that you can't, if you can't do your concept with the budget allotted, then, then don't do it. Do a different concept, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, Book of Trespasses will be better than, than Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> guaranteed. <laughs> um, <laughs> high praise indeed. Mm -hmm. um, okay, uh, as far as the advice before you go into it, uh, and again, here I go down to the negatives again, but I'm going to be real. I'm going to be like right-wing John Gormley radio. Real. Get out of Saskatchewan. Yeah, well, as so many um, people who were working, living and working here have done. The major, the, the few actual professional companies that were here are gone because they have a brain in their head. The, yeah. Like Fargo was shot in Calgary. It might well have been shot in Saskatoon, the Fargo TV series, because, you know, it's actually closer to Minnesota and the environments are right and probably as cheaper, cheaper than shooting in Calgary. Yeah. There's plenty of productions that I'm sure we lost with that credit. And I don't think anybody could seriously argue that point. And the fact that we don't have the professional industry people in there means basically you are limited to the means you have available, the friends and the people that you can, can make connections with that are mm -hmm. still in the province. And if they're still in the province, they're probably not making their living at film. Mm -hmm. So you have to go into it knowing that. There's a freedom to it. There's a freedom knowing that you're like the only person out there doing it. And that I guess in that respect, you have no quote competition. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a hostile environment for the arts that we find ourselves in. It's not just film, it's especially film these days, but I would love to see a pie chart about how the government expenditures go and the, how big that sliver is that goes to arts mm -hmm. and how every year that sliver just gets smaller and smaller. Not valuing art is not valuing culture. So That's a big reason I wanted to start uh, not just the podcast portion, but this website in general is because you spoke a little bit earlier about how um, people who want to make a living as you know in the arts in Saskatoon or Saskatchewan are kind of crazy or maybe there's some uh, inordinately large ego at work yeah. that allows them to think that they can actually do it and I think that if you're independently wealthy just go crazy <laughs> yeah but if you want to eat like I do and you know uh, have a you know a, a few hours in a given week where you can put your feet up and relax mm -hmm. um, you're it's a tough road to hoe um, that said I have the utmost respect for anybody who's doing any kind of art in this province, anybody who's sticking it out, uh, and it's not because they have to, they're stranded, they have no choice, you know, they, this is where we live, and uh, art is everywhere, and, and this place counts. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm on your side. Uh, I just want to be real that not a lot of people are. <laughs> um, they will they will build another football arena b before they will you know spend a fraction of the price on a new theater. Do you think that's why you were able to find people who showed the commitment and passion that that you had as well and had that in common was because they know that they have to be banded together in a place in a center like Saskatoon where this that kind of storytelling won't happen unless they have yeah. take that approach and have that kind of attitude? Yeah, it's true, but hungry artists are like hot girls. Contrary to popular belief, they are everywhere. Yeah, hungry artists, but not hungry artists who are also good. Yeah, well, and, and hungry... Like, you both. found really talented people yeah. to help you with your project and yeah. be part of it, so... 
uh, people who haven't had you know taken a stab at working professionally you know and and, and that are completely talented enough to work professionally mm -hmm. but can't because of where they live yeah um, so what advice would I give? Well, if you're going to stick it out here, I guess that would be, if you're going to stay in Saskatchewan and mm -hmm. you are going to do it, um, definitely connect yourself with other creative people. Don't take the burden on all on by yourself. And if you can do it in bites, it's the way to go. Like I said, when we planned the production to have three distinct shooting sets, mm -hmm. that helped us a lot. It gave us prep time going into and coming out of each step and uh, air in between. Uh, and it, it was helpful for my actors too because three years go by between the two things so we wanted them to look distinctly different. Mm -hmm. You don't look vastly different after three years, but I wanted people to be able to look at the film and say, I know where I am just because Matt yeah. has a beard. He's got some stuff. color in his face. Yeah, right? he's got a beard in one timeline and not in the other one. So right away you have that mm -hmm. visual cue. Um, I think that you can help yourself. There are things you can do from the pre-production end. Uh, pre-production doesn't cost you anything but time and well and personal energy. But mm -hmm. as much as you can plan and just make all those plans, knowing that on any given day you're going to have to adapt. But if you come in as prepared as you can be, it makes for smoother shooting days. It was always the days where we had clear storyboards and we knew where we were and what we were going to do. If there's a couple days we're going to we're going to go find a section of woods and we're going to shoot this how it feels right, then you're there forever, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you go in with a plan that's going to help you every single time. And uh, do stay in Saskatchewan because, uh, you know, I don't want to be, you know, the only filmmaker in Saskatchewan. We also used to like how you introduced the guy making a movie in Saskatoon right now. I know there are other people that are working on film, but uh, we need to spread the word. We need we need a support. The system. arts community in general needs to needs to expand. I mean, Saskatoon is a growing community. You know, and I hear that every day. But I still feel like when it comes to the indie theater scene, anyway, the majority of people who want to support you and come out are other other theater professionals yeah you know and everybody's um, looking for a gig especially people who are like sacked up with the union and everything like we have shakespeare in the saskatchewan we have persephone and you're not gonna you maybe get one one play a year out of the season of persephone and maybe you get lucky enough to be in the regular troupe at, at shakespeare mm -hmm. but that's still best case scenario two gigs a year yeah so if you like basically if you want to work and train and hone your skills you can't work professionally. <laughs> you have to go under the radar. You have to just do it. And when you do that, you, you don't get paid. Mm -hmm. So I just go into it real. Like, know that there's no immediate paycheck and that there's going to be hard days and that you have to go into it looking at the product itself being the payday. Me being able to put up a screening of this, hopefully at the Broadway, and to sit in an audience and hear people react as terrifying as part I'm sure that will be, will be amazing to me. Mm -hmm. will, like, that, will that be the moment where you feel like this is, this circle's come complete now and I and I get chills thinking about it. I don't know like if I will be non-verbal that day because I remember the first day I moved to Saskatoon, I thought my life was ruined because my parents had uh, rudely yanked me from small town Alberta to live in Saskatchewan. I remember watching the movie FUBAR and having chills thinking if I'd stayed in Beaumont, Alberta, that's who I would be. <laughs> but uh, uh, I took a walk uh, from this apartment that my mom was living in while she was looking for a house for us to live in, and I was unhappy, and uh, just exploring Saskatoon for the first time by myself. 
And I walked up Broadway and I saw the Broadway theater and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool if I got to watch a movie that I made in that, in like an old fashioned theater like Mm -hmm. that? And I was like 13. So to have that book ended and actually have it happen, like, like it would blow my mind. Like, I don't know, I don't know how I would react. I don't know how I will react. Like if we have to say something before or after the film, I seriously might be in trouble Yeah. because the reality of having it shown there, even if it doesn't get seen anywhere else to me, like that's my payday. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're going into film and sketch when that's about as modest as you want to approach it. <laughs> Everything else is gravy. Then if I make money over this or if I get another project out of it, um, you know, it's, you know, it's all gravy. But at the end of the day, I have this finished product and that's my goal. That's my, that's my trophy. That's my paycheck. Mm -hmm. How I'm going to eat that week, I don't know, but I will have a smile on my face. Just generally speaking, to anyone out there, if you want to do stuff, generally speaking, do it. Yeah. You will feel better even if you, you know, finishing a short story yeah. or like uh, you're thinking about, I don't know, running in the morning. The second you actually do it, it, it really does feel better. The, the first step, it's a cliche, the first step is in a lot of ways the hardest, you know? Yeah. I really felt kind of weird about starting a horror podcast i honestly oh, thought like I did. people are gonna make fun of me and it's like oh how many people are not listening to your podcast yeah. this week larry and uh i've had you know and a few people have rolled their eyes i'm not gonna lie but i have never regretted doing it yeah i, I think we've all had the same experience um I, I find a lot of people's eyes do glaze over if they find <laughs> out they, they get really excited when they're like oh you do a podcast and then as, as soon as you explain what it is their kind of eyes glaze yeah. over and they're like so it's oh. not meant for them like it's for men like, it is, it's just a very that, niche thing yeah yeah but the thing is that's what's what's awesome for us too is that we've been lucky enough to latch on to people who are interesting and fun people to talk to they're just like us and like the fact that we get the conversation going among some people about horror movies is exciting enough for me. Like that, that's mm-hmm. enough for me to say, fuck all the people who make fun of me for doing this. <laughs> I, I, I like, I, I work with people who would never, ever, ever understand something like this. And that's fine. Yeah. Everyone's got their own thing, but I totally, I, this is the best thing I've ever done for myself is this podcast. So yeah. I totally pe- agree there, We just reviewed the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. right? There are people who would just be 
horrified that I endorsed yeah. that. Movie. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. really? Like, maniac. Seriously? Are you yeah. are you well? <laughs> it's like, no. It, it it is exactly what it means to be, and yeah. uh, that's that's how I'm going to grade this movie. What was it trying to do, and what did it accomplish? Yeah, exactly. No, so. but um, I, I really like what you're saying about like the the hardest step is doing it because you'll have so many people that talk about doing you know uh, something as simple as yeah going out and running or starting a podcast or even having a part in a movie like you did you know yeah. and it's a lot of people talk talk the talk but they don't walk the walk not saying that doing a podcast is hard but it's it's not the easiest thing there it's definitely not the, yeah like we we There's come always in, a reason to not do that and have something else yeah to do like instead. like <laughs> we come on here and joke around and stuff and and you know we talk about how we're, we're very carefree about it but there, there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that people don't know about that's the one thing that i feel like i'm uh, i'm a little bit worried that uh, some people like we might give off the give off the vibe that we don't give a shit which is totally not true at all it's just I, like it's a, it's a front I yeah think. well that well the, the thing is i think i'm worried about people listening and being like these guys don't actually put any effort into what they're doing like we we, yeah. we work our fucking asses off to get three people here a week if <laughs> anything we care too much like, yeah i don't know about you like i have literally thousands of movies in my yeah. house yeah and it causes friction with my wife <laughs> like i have a fucking problem yeah. okay some people <laughs> man if it's what makes you happy how yeah. much is it a problem some people have a cocaine problem i have a cheap <laughs> horror movie problem yeah some if people... it's a horror movie that's under five bucks Kind oh, of on it. when it's got that two ninety nine or three ninety nine sticker, I'm like, ooh. ooh. <laughs> Some of us are just all of the above. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no man, this is it's well, it's awesome to have you here. Uh, that's I want to talk a little bit more about horror movies here. Cool. Then, um, what are the things that have gotten your attention recently? So, like, you're a seasoned vet of Whoa. the horror genre. Sorry, do you, I was just going to ask um, before before we do that question. I think it'd be kind of good to go like, what are your genres within oh. horror? Yeah, what's your favorite subgenre? Yeah, what's your favorite sub? Sorry, and then we can go on to like yeah. what's coming up recently that you like. Okay, I'll go controversial for you right away. Sure, because they're two of the most maligned genres in horror. Well, one of them's a genre. One of them's actually just kind of an approach. Okay, found footage. I love zombie movies. Okay, I know everybody's hard on zombie movies, and I know that we've had a glut in the last ten years. I get it. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a water watered down. I understand yep. it. I grew up in the eighties and nineties loving zombies, and throughout the nineties, until you have to understand the like twenty eight days later, and that Dawn of the Dead remake revitalized them. Finding a good zombie movie was just this rare golden treasure thing. So yeah, I I, I really valued them and totally embraced the. The new modern age of zombie. Yeah. I will still, to this day, defend Walking Dead, no matter how much people bitch about. That oh, we show. we definitely have. <laughs> Are you still watching and everything? Too? Uh, I'm I'm not current, I'm, okay. uh, but I'm up to the previous. That's okay, the previous six, season. I think. Is it so? Six? You you still are following it more than anyone I know, right? That's okay. I, I, I watched all the last season. <laughs> I wait for the season to air and then I yeah. watch the whole thing. Yeah. It's typically how I go because yeah. I don't like But there's movies. there's so much especially with that show. I mean, cuz I just talk back on and watch last season is it takes so long to get any sort of story out of it because they do commercials and then they mm -hmm. they actually replay a little bit of what happened before the commercial. So you have a 5 minute commercial, then you're seeing a little bit of what happened before, which you is get, the benefit of waiting for it all to air and watching yeah. it. Exactly. Yeah, which is which is a benefit to you. Yeah. Um, and I've been a fan of the book, so like seeing what they do different from mm -hmm. the book. And again, I just it's been the show that I've wanted since I was twelve and they finally made it and it was huge. So yeah. I will defend The Walking Dead. And well, I will There's a lot of good shit in it. Yeah. I just think like I think there's it's hard to keep that consistent. And the other thing that I will defend, and you called me on it, uh, just mainly because I'm sick of people maligning it, is the found footage. 
Yeah, found I, footage I actually, is a really yeah. a found footage guy. A lot of people just like will say, "I don't watch found footage." Found footage, maybe they'll dismiss it completely. And as far as I'm concerned, that's like saying I don't like black and white movies, or yeah. uh, I don't like handheld camera. Yeah. It's 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 how you're telling a story. It's not a story to dismiss an entire genre approach. Yeah, yeah, is so like well because it's been proven that there's tons of amazing found footage movies out there, and it's true that there's a lot of terrible ones. Yeah, but it's you the know same what? with Everything. Guys, there's a lot of terrible monster movies, and there are millions of terrible slasher movies. <laughs> yeah, and like for some reason, found footage has all the stink on it. And I'm here to say, fucking leave them alone, man. <laughs> if you're a low budget filmmaker, by the way, found footage makes so much goddamn sense. Bear down your location, single camera, forced perspective. I understand why it's popular. And I understand why a lot of them suck because they're made by amateurs with no money. Yeah. And, uh, and also no storytelling as well. Well, that's the important. That's the key ingredient. Yeah, because that's the key ingredient that, that the found footage is not depend. Well, every movie is dependent on. Maybe especially found footage. Yeah. But like, if you're not telling a good story, you're fucked anyway. Yeah, because uh, I mean that that point of when found footage first came out, where you could just have you know people be scared if you just walked around in the woods for a while, and you're like, oh, the woods are terrifying. And then it's been so long now that you've seen how many movies where they try and rely on the fact that they're in a forest or something, and you're supposed to be scared. It doesn't work as well. You need yeah. to actually have a story to go with it. I think that's why people actually shit on found footage a lot, and I think it's because like in our in our this day and age found footage is almost like the super like deep sequels that the 80s had they or the 90s like the fret uh, nightmare on street part five like it's like the studio wants to make some money where can we put our eggs let's get another yeah let's time. get another freddy movie going whatever it'll be cheap just fucking give them the money and then we'll we'll make a wicked payback there and the same thing with that became a big studio move is just like everything's got to be found footage mm -hmm. and that's why so i understand people getting tired of it but there's still a lot of good shit in it. To yeah. be, like, there's a lot of stuff that people are dismissing and they're skipping over because they're too proud to just give something like that an example, like a shot. Just generally speaking, and like I have, I have my blind areas too. Again, like I can't, I just can't get excited about watching a musical, and I'm probably yeah. missed out on a lot of good experiences. That's surprising that. from a theater guy. Too. I know. I, I mean, but I'll see it on a stage. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. But for some reason, in, the, in a, as a film, I'm, I'm not. It takes away that uh, aura, I guess. Yeah. From watching uh, live. And I think the reason that uh, maybe a lot of filmmakers kind of like found footage, because I've noticed that true a lot, is that it's the insider baseball thing. Uh, when you watch a lot of films, if you've been on the set of a lot of movies, yeah. you can sort of easily distract yourself by figuring out how they did that shot and yeah. what yeah. was happening. And I find with the forced perspective, it's such an experiential thing that... I will get jump. I will get jumped when I wouldn't in a regular straightly shot film that wouldn't have made me jump. But because of this found footage one, it it, it, it yeah. You, me. you can kind of look and go like, okay, there's the the background and like to the right they have this going on yeah. off screen. You know it's there even though they're not showing it. There's rough amateur quality to it, but you still have specificity. You still have to choose your shots, and I think when done well, they can be very frightening. And very frightening is what I'm looking for. When um, I'm watching a horror not to too. put you on yeah. the spot, but yeah, like what what are some of the found footage movies you really like um okay well um have you seen grave encounters yes i'm um, a guilty pleasure movie it's a total ghost house jump movie yeah but it worked way better than i thought it would troll hunter troll hunters awesome. troll hunters fantastic troll hunters that. Fucking awesome. i've seen grave hunters i'm just kind of like or grave, grave encounters and i'm like yeah, continue <laughs> no again that's another one of those movies where i was expecting nothing of it yeah. right 
as we've seen this movie before, they're going to in- they're going to investigate this uh, creepy haunted facility, and you feel like you've seen the movie just by seeing the trailer. And the movie surprised me. Like I jumped several times. I was sort of amused by the central character, what a chotch he was at the beginning, <laughs> to what a broken individual he turned in by the end of it. I gotta and give it, it another watch. It way exceeded my expectations. I've heard the second one's even better. I would disagree with that, okay. but there are people who defend it. Um, there's an Australian film called The Tunnel. Yes. Uh, that is a fantastic movie. Yeah, uh, and another one. This is more faux documentary, but another great Australian one called Lake Mungo. Just watched that for the first time. I have Should that yeah. ready it to go, and I haven't that, seen it That's the one where I think I told... like I, When I was reviewing it on here, my girlfriend and I watched it, and it fucking bothered us so bad. Right. And it, like We had been watching horror movies all day, and we never stopped watching horror movies. But that, after that one, it was just like... We need a break. Fuck. Like, let's put on Food Network. <laughs> yeah. Like, does it, it was, feel like an episode of The Simpsons? That'd yeah. Okay. And it's not like it necessarily even, like, really scared me. It just, like you said, chilling. Yeah. It, it got under my skin. Yeah. Like, it, it was very effective in that way. Have you uh, seen uh, The Bay? Yeah. I really like that one. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if that's strictly a found footage, because it's kind of all over the it's place. Like but it's a it's a, Yeah, yeah. faux, but that's, that was fantastic. The same thing I'm talking about, where you have a forced perspective. Yeah. I don't mind if you jump from camera to camera, or if you sort of use, you know the media or security footage however you want to do it but i think we all know what we're talking about yeah, right yeah. where you you you're sort of trying to present this as a real quote unquote yeah film. like you're watching you're watching the footage after and going like what happened this here this is faces of death you shouldn't be yeah, seeing yeah you're this you're the footage. detective or whatever <laughs> exactly so yeah there's a, quite a few of them that i that i like um, the the last exorcism the first one i quite awesome. liked awesome yeah um i haven't seen that one in a while even yeah. some of the more hollywooded versions of them that I think kind of cheat the line a little bit. I think there's a really good sequences in that uh, As Above So Below movie. I agree. Um, I I thought that was such a good idea for a movie that just went nowhere. I've but met, again, there's this really solid, isolated like. It's just movie. the setting. And, like, I, it won me over just because uh, that's a movie that everyone shits on and I, I get it, yeah. but for some reason I liked it. Yeah. Uh, they did. Uh, Aja produced this one called The Pyramid which yeah, really I just frustrates me because it's quite scary but it fails in the found footage. It starts off as a found footage movie, and at some point, it yeah. just becomes a movie. Have you seen and The Pyramid, Boozy? That is distracting to me. Pick a lane. Because also, because no. <laughs> that's the thing, too, is it's a monster movie, and it's unique as fuck in the monster element. Yeah, The but, Pyramid. Yeah, it, and I would say watch it just because... Okay, it's flawed, but it's It is look. very flawed, but like the, the like it gets so ridiculous... <laughs> That I I recommend it. Like it's it's what what would you even call? It? They're like Sphinx cats. Uh, yeah. Oh, for fuck's sake! It's sakes. like in the it's uh, in a it's in a they get attacked by mummified cats at one point. Yeah. Oh, God. oh, but you gotta watch it, man. Because and the thing is, it is very like CGI at times. But yeah. like with I feel like the found footage, like where they put in the uh, night vision or whatever, right. it works in its favor a little bit. I think but that's it's so goofy. <laughs> I'm I think sure that's so a bunch cool. I'm missing now. I'm gonna afterwards. I'm gonna think. Yeah. Oh, I should have mentioned. You're gonna this, listen to all that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's so cool that you mentioned the tunnel. I, I think that's one movie that uh, no Got one's missed. really seen, and I think it's a fantastic film. I was actually I watched it in the dark alone at night, and I was terrified. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic found footage film. Uh, Paranormal Activity one and three. I like one, I, two, and three. Really? I actually yeah. just bought three this weekend. I went to uh, high tech because yeah. you guys were talking yeah. about all the cheap movies. I went there and bought the Blu-ray of it because I was like, three was definitely my favorite. Yeah, yeah three was awesome. Well, again, because three was set in the eighties, that was my childhood that they yeah. were talking about. So yeah. it just got me personally. Yeah, well, seeing I, that I just Teddy Ruxpin doll was like, yeah, that's my yeah. house. That's my, <laughs> that's fucking my house. sister had a Teddy Ruxpin doll. <laughs> and I, I think that that made me like that movie more too because yeah. it was fucking terrifying. Um, 
That's awesome. Well, what, so what are things like recently? Like what's something that you've seen in the last couple of weeks, maybe this year? That, or yeah, the last couple of years. Yeah. Like, okay. Um, the one I want to uh, read, most recent one that I brought that I was going to see if you guys had had a thing on Train to Busan. That was our we, number one of them. Yeah, we went to it when it was playing at Broadway, and not not expecting it to be as amazing as it was. It blew my fucking mind. And it, I love zombie movies. I love zombie movies. And like again, I put it in the same company as Twenty Eight Days oh, Later. I put 100%. it with Dawn in the Dead. Like yeah, it's, it's it's right up there. It's an amazing movie, and there's an animated prequel apparently. Yeah, yeah. Soul Station. I still haven't yeah, seen Soul it, but I've, I've heard not as good things about. It, but it's on Shutter. Oh yeah. But I've been wanting to watch it. Yeah, because that was. Uh, we did our when we first we started the show in 2016, so we did our top tens of 2016, right. and all three of us had Train to Busan as our number one. Nice, love that movie. Yeah, um, I guess I, I, some of the less recent recommendations. Um, tonally close to what we're going to be talking about here, session nine, the last winter. Never seen it. I'm going to write that down it. because I haven't seen it. It's written and directed by Larry Fessenden. Okay, is this a Wendigo? Uh, no, well, no. He, he also did a movie called Wendigo. Wendigo, okay, yeah. But. Um, this is set in the Arctic. There are a bunch of people drilling there, and this guy is sent out to do an uh, environmental assessment to see if they should keep on going. I it feel seems, like I've seen this, actually. It seems very clear that when he gets there, he wants to shut them down, but they're they're obviously playing a game of chess. But... As things are thawing, something, something has thawed out of the ice. And it seems to affect everybody a little differently. And people start falling apart. And it's a slow burn, much like Session 9. But I honestly think if you like Session 9, yeah. check I, the, that. The, the more you talk about I'm pretty sure I've seen this. Ron actually. Perlman? Ron, Ron Perlman, Perlman, yeah. Hellmoy's in it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is this... Yes, I, I have seen this because it has a very terrifying ending. It does. <laughs> I don't I, want to spoil it necessarily. No, do I. A lot of people have seen it, but it's totally worth. I, I know exactly. Yeah, I now that, now that I'm talking about <laughs> the top of my list, I'll watch it for next week. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, Larry Fessenden's one because he shows up at the end of session nine. That's correct. That's, yeah. yeah, he he's a he, low he's budget a friend of horror. I yeah, like to totally. talk about him in my show all the time. He, I, I think of him as my sort of spirit animal. Like, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> if, Honestly, if if I could be in that position where I'm every year he produces a couple of horror movies, yeah, and every two or three years he writes and directs one, and that's what he's been doing for the last fifteen years, and I think that's a pretty fucking enviable to place to totally. Be. And he's never like really blown up, but a lot of people who have blown up state him as one of their main inspirations, yeah. and like he was someone who like helped them get into the business and helped them with their horror movies. So well, that's pretty awesome. He makes incredibly low budget movies, and you know. And he makes them distinctly his. And a lot of times, I will say, it'll be a love-hate relationship uh, re uh, reaction. But I always find it's worth worth checking out. So yeah, definitely The Last Winter. He produced a movie called We Are Still Here. I was just about to mention that one. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I talked I about that last year. I dug the shit out of that year. movie. Really, really, again, caught me off guard. I thought it was going to be this sort of forgettable PG ghost movie, and it turned all no. Evil Dead 2 in it's the second fucking act. Rank. <laughs> <laughs> so it got pretty real. It was a brutal movie at times. Um, I brought some to say. I knew you guys wanted to talk about shit here, so. Oh, you actually have the last winter. That's fucking awesome. Oh, oh sweet. Uh, Triangle. I've been. That's been on my list forever. This is I a Christopher Smith. It's a British movie. Yeah. This woman uh, is being taken on a cruise to get away. She lives an incredibly stressful life. Her son's severely disabled, and they enter a storm and they find this abandoned ship, and it, things just slowly start to spiral more and more out of oh. control. I think I, I think I've seen this. It, it shows up on like every list of movies that are amazing that you haven't seen before. <laughs> um, do you guys know Hellbenders? I've never even not. heard of Hellbenders. <laughs> okay, oh, I know that one. J.T. Petty, 
Uh, he wrote and directed a, a, a horror western, which I love, called The Burrowers. <laughs> Bruce, you just I just watched this, this like week. three weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, it's a really good movie, it, right? I, <laughs> I think it, it could have been better, but the idea was so good that I, it kept me. I, I, I found that the third act fell apart for me. It, there's something so ugly about it that it's almost off-putting, but it's a way homer. Like do, it's it's grown in my esteem. Yeah. Do you, do you mean? Do you know what I mean? Where like at the end they were kind of just like they threw in like another villain, and you're like, well, they already have the you know <laughs> the burrowers. Why do you need another villain? Yeah. And it also seemed to me almost like a competition of like how dark can we make this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, how dark can? But we, such a cool idea. Again, for I wouldn't talk anybody out of watching it. Anyway, the same writer director did this movie Hellbenders. Okay. Here's your premise. You got a bunch of priests Love who it. have to live in sin. <laughs> like they have to buy to buy the nature of their jobs. They have to commit sins and break commandments because their job is to exercise demons. They grab hold of the demon, they kill themselves, and they literally drag the demon to hell with them. The, and it's a comedy. I was going to say, at the start, it sounded like you were describing a porno. <laughs> yeah, because Cl Clifton Cole... Nobody talks about this movie, and it is fucking hilarious. Clifton Collins Jr. is in, like, so many things, too. Like, he's in the, the Star Trek, he's in Capote. Yeah. Yeah, like, I, what, he's Justin in... Justin only... shows up in this one, too. Oh, okay. I'm writing all of these down. That's what my phone's are, by the way. Uh, so I've brought, seen this one, I love it. I brought the Grave Encounters to talk about. Uh, Dagon? Anyone know Dagon? I know Dagon. No. Okay, here's the thing. This is a, this is a cautionary tale. Stuart Gordon, we know Stuart Gordon, Reanimator, mm -hmm. Dolls, Dolls. He's done a lot of cool genre work. This is based off an H.P. Lovecraft, and it will give you one of the best adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft that you've ever seen. Yeah. But it will also give you some of the worst CGI Boozy you have ever that. seen, counterbalanced by some of the best prosthetic effects you have ever seen. It's been a long time since I've seen it. It is incredibly it. unstable in its quality from scene to scene. Some of the performances are really strong. Some of the performances seem like they're dubbed in. But the movie is just so fucking crazy. What years? This seems this like early two thousand. I want to say late 90s, early aughts, something like that. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. That looks... Actually, I think I, I one of my friends has that. Oh, you brought more. Brought is this what you were going to... Oh, <laughs> we have an episode on this coming up. Oh, do you? Yeah. Uh, Andy Preller of Erie International. Shout out. He's holding Cemetery Man. I just wanted to shout out to you guys. Or you can find it as uh, Della Morte. Della, Della Morte. Yeah. The, when I was talking about in the 90s when I was desperate for more zombie movies and anything I could get my hands on. Well, I got my hands on this cemetery, man. And again, much like Dagon, it's scene to scene completely bonkers. <laughs> There's some really uncomfortable, really graphic sex in it. But that's it's all also, it's <laughs> so far so good. It's also just hypnotic. It's beautifully shot. It's funny. It's scary. It's gross. You can't compare it to anything else. People love, people hate, but again, watch yeah. it. That it one's just coming up. demands to be watched. Listener appreciation episode <laughs> coming up in, I think, I just three or four weeks. Uh, I, got, I see a swastika already. <laughs> i got a couple more for you here. Uh, Blood Creek, anyone? I've Blood never Creek. seen Blood Creek. I've seen that cover, but I've never it, seen it. Okay. I'll read. Oh, yes. Here's the cast. Just to recap. Michael Fessbender. <gasps> Shea Wingdom. Henry Cavill. Whoa. Holy shit. Emma Booth. Directed by... Joel Schumacher. What? Nazi zombies. Kiss what do I need freak. to say anymore? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm writing I sold it down. You on this <laughs> Batman Forever? <laughs> the director of Batman and Robin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, it's the guy, the guy from uh, Prison Break. 
Yeah. And, uh, uh, sorry, Blade Trinity. So, <laughs> and that movie, again, it's just insane the people that are in it. It's insane that Joel Schumacher directed. It's insane the subject matter that it is. The story, like, there's nothing not crazy about it. And again, I feel sometimes like I'm the only person in the world that's seen the movie, and it makes me crazy. I think you are. Because <laughs> I, remember, I remember this being on the shelves when I worked in video stores, and I was just like, this looks awful. <laughs> And you know what? It's kind of nice, though, sometimes having those movies where it's like, only I've seen this and only I enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> this and is mine. The last one that I brought to share with you guys. And again, I was just seeing, what what have you seen? What have you not? Night of the Creeps? That's a favorite. You've seen Night of the Creeps, Boozy, right? I, I, Man, you watch this with me and Diego right before we were thinking about starting the podcast where it's the prom. The it's thrill me. The movie has oh, okay, yeah, the movie yeah. has everything. Okay. Yeah. It's got aliens, it's got zombies, it's set in the fifties and the eighties, it's got a serial killer, it's got a wisecracking cop. The characters are named after uh JC, John Carpenter, yeah. oh, and like, Sean Cunningham, yeah. Sean S. Cunningham. Yeah. It's wall to wall. It's alien. <laughs> Man, it's, it's amazing. It's, uh, I think Slither took uh, more it than totally a few things from it. Yeah, uh, it's I fantastic, think it, and it's genuinely eighties. Yeah, like when it's they, one of most eighties movies. It's, it's so eighties, like, it's like but in such a delicious way, you guys. What's the, it's like Saved by the Bell, but a <laughs> horror movie. I love that movie, and that's uh, Diego, the other co-host who's not here. That's one of his favorite movies of all time. Nice. Yeah, well, and I, I know we t I, we spoke with Lee Beckman about him coming on here, and he chose Night of the Creeps. Did or, it? Like, it was it was in like his like five movies he was choosing. I was like. Just a heads up, we're probably going to choose Night of the Creeps because that's like Diego's favorite movie. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, so yeah, and those are the ones I brought. And again, I, I figured you guys would have heard of most of them, but... There's a couple here that we haven't seen. There's yeah. some in there. And again, you may not like Dagon the same way I do. I know that one might I've have, seen hit, Dagon. Me, it might have hit me personally, yeah. but... I, I, I love that you reminded me of the last winter because I, I have to watch that again. I remember oh, it being so really good. good. Yeah, it's so good, dude. It's so and good. Thank you so much for bringing us some suggestions. That's sure. uh, that's a first. So you're already our best <laughs> guest. <laughs> and I also brought Grave Encounters. See, I'm a fan. Proof positive. And you brought I, a copy of Session Nine, which is very hard to find. Yeah, oh, I. This is what I'm talking about when I carry these. By the way, if you listen to my podcast. Every movie that we review is accounted for in my collection. With, if not, usually I'll mention it. I'll say, you know, I don't actually own this movie. Or, like, or you know, I destroyed... We, Lee and I, when we reviewed Day of the Dead 2 Contagium, yeah. after the review is over, we physically destroyed... <laughs> that, yeah. that reminds me of... Um, <laughs> oh, what? Do you own Resurrection? <laughs> Halloween Resurrection? I do, but it's part of a two-pack with uh, oh, H2O. Okay. So I can't destroy it without yeah. also destroying H2O. And I feel like you could get away with both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't see eye to eye on Halloween. That's one thing we've noticed. That's fair enough. Yeah. I've, 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 made, I've laid my case bare on Halloween. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for bringing all those recommendations. Because, yeah, <laughs> I sure. wrote all those. I even wrote, I've seen Grave Encounters. And I wasn't a fan, but I want to revisit it. Because yeah. the only thing I remember that, that I didn't like that took me out of it is I'm hate the droopy face shit right like and well, that was like one of the first character. ones to really it, it get it really was that. and it was just like to me it's just like that that to me felt cheap but well it was cheap that's the other yeah. thing i like about it it was yeah. made in canada for no money yeah so the I warehouse they were the hospital they shot it in is a place where they shoot outside of vancouver it's supposed to be one of the most shot buildings in in the, in the, in is the country another one in ginger snaps too yeah they shot a lot of x files and millennium yeah. episodes i think you're actually right like, yeah i think it's the same place they did ginger snaps too yeah so yeah it's yeah, check it out. <laughs> Sweet, man. That's awesome. So...
Thank you for listening to this special edition of Rank and Review. There's just no way I could thank everybody who were involved in making this movie, Book of Trespasses, come to fruition. I do want to make a special shout-out for my cast, of course, and my two main creative collaborators, Gareth Nickel and Jared Berry. I will never, ever be able to pay you guys back for all the work you guys did. You find your host and random Canadian fairly humbled here. It's strange days for me. I feel like all this work has sort of led to this place, and I don't know what that means exactly, if it means we get a film distributed, or if it means that we just get to have a celebration amongst our friends. It feels like a win to me, and this podcast feels like a win to me. And wherever you are, however this podcast is finding your ears, wherever you are in the world, I'm sure there are people in that corner who are trying with all of their hearts to make art. Support them. I know that the, the world's tiniest violin plays for the artists. I know a lot of people don't value it. But I do, because it is valuable. It's important. If you do not respect art, you do not respect culture. And if you do not respect culture, then you do not respect both the productivity and the ability and the creative energy that is within every human being. We can't all of us be plumbers and lawyers. Some of us are, I guess, driven to create. That sounds really weird coming out of my mouth, but I do feel like if I wasn't making this movie, if I wasn't doing this podcast, if I wasn't doing something creative, I would be in a mental institution somewhere. I value my listeners, and I hope to find an audience for this film. Thank you for listening to Rankin Review, and thank you for helping to spread the word on Book of Trespasses. Rankin Review shall return. I don't want you guys to worry about that. We'll go back to our regular format next episode. Lee Beckman and I are going to take on the Child's Play franchise. You've got that to look forward to, and even with this movie going on, you can hope to hear new episodes of Rankin Review every other Wednesday. This is your host and random Canadian saying thanks for listening. Especially this episode, you guys. Thanks for listening.